Hello and welcome to G220 Radio. And hopefully I am sharing sound. I'm not hearing anything. Sorry. But we are, this is Mike with G220 Radio, and we are going to be looking at Genesis 11. And so we'll be thinking through it a little bit. This is a uh, Sunday school lesson I did a while back. And. We had a cancellation. That's really what happened. Um, we were supposed to have the Deuteronomy on tonight. And he had to postpone the episode. He had some issues come up that had to be dealt with. And we're still going to have him on. We're planning early next month when it's possible. So this will be a... Should be a good episode um, when they'll be able to come back for it. And then next week is our round table. So you want to come next week and come listen to us as we discuss theological issues, maybe some debate. We're going to have a wheel. It's going to be at random. So we don't know exactly what we'll be talking about. We'll have a, we have a list of topics that will be on the list on the wheel and we'll spin the metaphorical wheel on the internet and be able to get it. But in this episode, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be looking at Genesis 11. Genesis 11. So obviously this is kind of towards the end of kind of the first section of Genesis Genesis 12 will kind of narrowly focus on Abraham and his son and his son's son and his son's sons. Um, we do it. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the story of Joseph leading up to Genesis 50. So in this kind of first section, the first half and commentators kind of commentaries, if they divide Genesis up, they will divide it up here after Genesis 11. Some might even divide Genesis 11 with it, but we're going to take the whole chapter. We're going to look at it and we're going to kind of really focus on the first nine verses, the Tower of Babel, and to think about what is happening there. And then move to grander things when we think about what's going on. And so, but we need to kind of catch up a little bit, kind of get into the groove with it. Now, chapter 10 in Genesis is also a genealogy, and it kind of stretches from Noah to the generations after the Tower of Babel. So the Tower of Babel and its location is kind of in the middle of what we read at in Genesis 10. And we get this idea because of language Moses is queuing up on. So Moses, the writer of Genesis, is looking at and considering what is going on and having it out. And we get this repeated kind of phrase about after each of the sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And at the end, when they get done, Moses writes, like in verse 20 of chapter 10, these are the sons of Ham by their clan, their languages, their land, and their nations. 
We know that at least at the flood, they all speak the same language. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, they all speak the same language. They all know what is going on and, and talking about it. But when we look at what's happening here is you kind of, again, have this move from Noah to what would be a few generations or even generations of Abraham. Now, in chapter 10, Moses follows one of the sons of um, Shem, and Moses comes from the other son, or not Moses, Abraham, Abram, comes from the other son. And so when we look at it and think about it, we start um, to see this movement. Moses is building up to what is going to be the mainstay in Abram, in the founder of the Jewish religion, of the kind of the example of faith that we are called to follow. And so in these, in chapter 10, we get these ideas of what is going on and kind of the movement through. So chapter 11 kind of steps back a little bit in time and then in the first nine verses and then the rest of the chapter, as we will see, kind of moves the story now from Shem to Abram and sets us up for chapter 12. And to think about, really, we all know the Tower of Babel and its kind of importance. But there's also this aspect that we need to see in genealogies that the promise of the son of Eve that will to come and crush the serpent's head. There's this theme throughout the beginning of Genesis that teases out all of these ideas. And they are looking forward to what we now know is Jesus, is the Son of God, the Incarnate One, the second person of the Trinity. And so we always have to remember that in the backgrounds. We're going to see here the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel does not thwart God's plan to bring a people to himself. In fact, this will become important later on in the biblical narrative. So as we think about Genesis 11, as we really think hard on the Tower of Babel, we will then begin to see kind of amazement of God's working and his salvific power, even today, even around us. So looking here at um, Genesis 11, I am going to be um, showing you a screen from Bible Gateway um, and be reading it here in the ESV. And we see here now in chapter 11, now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shiner and settled there. 
Now we're going to stop there. Let's think about just these first two verses. Now Moses helps us and sets it up. We see here that now the whole earth had one language and the same words. I'm as much as we believe the flood here, we can see Moses starting out with this idea, the whole world, everyone spoke the same language and the, the emphasis, the whole earth, one language, same words. Now we can consider this a little bit. We speak a dialect of English here in America and the people in the United Kingdom also speak a dialect of English. We could probably say proper English and we're American English. We have the same language for the most part. Just roll with me here. But we don't always have the same words. In fact, there's a YouTuber called Lost in the Pond that I routinely listen to because he talks about these weird, quirky things between England, where he's from, and America, where he's currently living. And, I mean, let's just highlight some of them. You know it. So English in the mother tongue, you have chips. When we think of chips here in America, we think of Fruit of Lays, barbecue chips, potato chips, tortilla chips. Those are the type of chips we think about. But in England, and probably no surprise, those are what we call fries. Chips in England are fries. That's why when you even go to places in America and you get fish and chips, you get a piece of fish and french fries or freedom fries if you're part of that craze. Again, we have a same language, but they're different words. You can say the same thing with crisps, which is what they call what we is what the English people call potato chips. They call them crisp or biscuits in England are what we call cookies here. And they don't have a thing like biscuits, maybe a scone and that, but not like what we have kind of as a biscuit. So in this crazy example, we can see here that this is really important. The emphasis, the whole earth had one language and the same words. They were together. There's this sense of unity in it. And so we can see here that they're coming that whatever this is, this, why is this important? Is kind of the question. Why is Moses telling this up at the front of the story, giving this kind of this context in which everything is going? Because we just read, and probably a lot of it is that they had their different languages. This gives us the clue that we've kind of gone back a little bit in time. This story doesn't proceed right after the final generations in Genesis 11 or in Genesis 10, but that we've kind of now in the middle. And I think later I'll try to pinpoint where I think this is in Genesis 10. So the people there are in the same language. They have the same words. And also when we look at it and consider, let's, Look here also in verse two, and as people, they migrated here. The SV says from the East and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. I do not think this is a good translation here from the ESV and just some other examples of what is being translated here what the ESV is translated is um, from the East is probably more in the line of they're going eastward. The NASB 95, the NASB 2020, the NIV all mention they are moving East. And that's kind of what the Hebrew brings out. 
And this is important. When we consider what has already been happening in Genesis, we think about Genesis 3. In verse 22, Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out to his hand and also takes to the tree of life and eat of it and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and flaming sword that that turned everywhere to guard the way to the tree of life. East has a meaning. Yes, they're traveling east. They are literally going east. They are moving away from, they're continuing to move away from the Garden East and keep moving east. But what Genesis 3 here and what we should read more into it is not just that they're moving east, but they're moving farther away from the presence of God. They're going farther away. Now, the temple, like the Garden of Eden, had an entrance on the east. To enter the temple, you entered on the east going west. They're going west. The Holies of Holies was west of the entrance. So as you approached the Holies of Holies, you kept heading west and getting closer to the presence of God. So we should see here that wherever the ark has landed, that this people group is moving east to the land of Shiner and to settle there. Now, We should see here that the land of Shiner would be in the Fertile Crescent. That is that area between the along the Euphrates um, and the other river I can't think of right now, kind of going up towards modern day Turkey, so modern day Iraq, modern day Turkey, and to the Tigris, now that I think of it, and that kind of area. And in Genesis 10, again, we kind of get an idea of where Shiner is. In Genesis 10, verses 10 and 11, you have the beginning of the kingdom of Babel, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalnik, and the land of Shiner. From that land, he, and this is Nimrod, went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothar, Kala. And risen between Nineveh and Kalhal, the great city. That is the great city. So Nimrod, who is a descendant of Ham, is in this area of land. The land of Shiner. And we are told that Assyria is here. Babel is here, or Babylon. This is the great this would be the land in that the Babylonian, the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires would grow. Again, to see this connection, go to Daniel chapter 1. Here, Daniel is one is taken. He is living in the exile. He lives through the exile. And he, you know, he's, um, we have all these stories about him and they're good. And he doesn't eat meat and he is strengthened because the meat is sacrificed from idols and he's not going to displease God in that way. But here in Daniel, the beginning part of Daniel, chapter one, we read, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So here we see Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, 
is living in the land of Shine, Shine, Shiner. And Daniel is written much later. It's the exile. You're looking at in the 400s, 300s BC. Moses is probably writing, if I remember right in my genealogy, 1200s-ish. So you got some time between the two about it. And so we should see here, we should recognize it. This is Babylon. This is away from the presence of God. And the early church recognized this. Um, the city named Confusion, and that's what Babylon means, was none other than Babylon to those marvelous constructions pagan history brings testimonies. For Babylon means confusion. It would seem that the founder of the city is the great Nimrod, as was noticed above. And here he's talking about Genesis 10 and his sermon, or his commentary of Genesis. This is Augustine. He continues, In mentioning him, the scripture tells us that Babylon was the head of his kingdom, meaning that the head of all of their cities, the capital who's the government and the kingdom had its seat. So we see here that they've gone to the east. They've gone to the plain of Shinar. They're in the, what's called the Fertile Crescent. And they settled there. And we should think, well, yeah, that makes sense that they've settled there. This is the Fertile Crescent. They can farm and have food it provides kind of the necessity of what they do they would be able to make bricks and to fire them to build buildings and same thing with egypt even in the stories of joseph egypt is in a prime position with the nile to continually to produce crops may have two or three harvest seasons and you see the similarities in the Fertile Crescent there. Land is fertilized. You have the water. You can grow. It makes sense to settle there. Now, I do think we need to realize a little bit that that's maybe not quite what they're supposed to be doing. The command of God in Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 is to cover the face of the earth, to work the ground, to, to expand it and to grow. Here they're settling it. They're not moving. They're going. We should be coming into this story now thinking, oh, this is not good. They're away from God's presence. They've settled down. They all have the same language. And we start seeing that. We start seeing this, what sin causes. And in verse 3, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks. Let's burn them thoroughly. And they made bricks for stones and butemen for martyr, for mortar now when we think about this they have come together and they're gonna make bricks they're gonna build something they're gonna burn them thoroughly they're gonna make them nice and hard and they had bricks for stones and butemen for mortar now butemen was normally used for kind of sealing for Mortar. So they've got these bricks and they're going to build them up. They're going to go and bring them together. Now, bricks in these times were usually kind of mud and straw. Um, we can see how they will, um, how they've designed. Um, these may be kind of more oval-looking bricks. And we see here kind of the continuation of the settling of the land. They're, they're starting to urbanize. They're going to start building things that 
they don't want destroyed. They're they're more permanent in ideas. You can think of um the pyramids in Egypt, kind of this kind of long-term building. So they come, they bake bricks. Um, the Butemen is what we would kind of call asphalt. Um, this is kind of an important idea. Now, this is not what is um, is not the same Hebrew word that is used when Mo or Noah is building the ark. Sorry, the mess not pronouncing knows Moses. Um, as I'm reading my notes, because um, Butemen is what. Moses's mother uses to line his basket to keep it waterproof when she puts him in the Nile River. Um, we read about these pits of butemen in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 14.10, and they're running away from the other kings in battle, and they're falling into these pits. And so this is kind of a natural asphalt. It would be hard. It would be really good of using kind of a caulking or a mortar as it mentioned. So they are looking for something very permanent. They're going to build something big. They want something to land. And so in verse four, we see it continue. They say, come, let us, Build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over all the face of the earth. So here we go. We get to the issue. The issue isn't building bricks. The issue isn't building the buildings. What are they going to do? They're going to. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. Now, what they're building is a temple. Probably a, zig a ziggurat is what they would have been known. And they're in cities. And they were tall buildings. They're building a temple. And in doing so, and building this tall temple that reaches to the tops of the heavens, they're going to try to make themselves a great name. We see here, and we should see here, their pride. And not only their pride, their false worship so they've come together to build a temple to the heavens and so this pride is expressed in in two ways and the first way we can think about it is they are trying to in a sense dethrone god they're trying to be able to work their way to heaven. They're trying to get to heaven their own way. They're building this tall tower. Nature and religions had these stairway-like st structures which would connect heaven and allow the heavenly bodies to go up and down. We see a similar idea in Jacob's dream in Genesis 28 where God reveals in him a dream, this ladder, and the angels are going up and down this ladder. So Genesis 28 helps us to understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to reach heaven. That's that's foolish. And we should see here the great kind of pride of people, especially after the rebirth of the earth with Noah. Sin is still an issue. We already knew that. We've you we you have the story of Noah and his sons. 
and Ham seeing the nakedness of his father and being cursed for it as a, as a kind of a power play against his brothers. And so they're trying to build this great tower, reaches the heaven, this city, this kind of fortress to, to make a great name so that they're not dispersed over the face of the earth. They want, they want people to come. They want to become mighty and big. And, and, and doing so, there, there's, these, there's reasons to do it, worldly reasons, but reasons to do it. In the ancient Near East, we see it all the time, is that nations are conquered and their people are scattered among the conquering nations. It happened to the Israelites. It was very common. They, they're trying to settle and become a great nation, thus kind of securing their future. But yet they tried to become like God. They tried to create a way to heaven. They're not trusting in God's promises. And... I think this is to note, not that cities are inherently evil, but as Matthew Henry notes, when we see people building cities in Genesis, they're not men of the best character or reputation. Shim builds a city, his son builds a city, and they're not people we want to follow. You don't want to be following Cain. You don't want to be following his son, um, Lamech, and what he does and the harshness he has. No. I think there's something to be said about kind of what cities bring. I think even... In our context, when I think of Louisville, Louisville is um, on pace to have one of the bloodiest years of murders. Um, just last week, a guy walked up to a construction worker and shot him. And then shot at a police officer who was nearby. He was the officer shot back. He was injured. So is the officer. Um, but that's just cities bring about more evil. I mean, in Nebraska, it was shocked when people got murdered. It happened, but it was a lot rare. Not that the country is sinless, like being out in country and being a farmer is sinless. That's not what I'm saying, but cities do tend to have more issues with bigger sins. And I think that should have us into consider how great the new Jerusalem will be a city with no sin. And we get to dwell with God. I mean, when we think about just this aspect of it, it should draw and long our hearts for something better. To see the brokenness around us and to long for the heavenly kingdom. But here they are. They're building a temple. They're trying to make a great name for themselves. And one also thing to note, and Matthew Henry notes about this, and I think this is an application for us. Um, let's just talk about these people. He, he notes that these people, Nimrod and his family, they're excited and encouraged to do the work. Come on, let us make bricks. Let's burn them. Let us build a, ourselves a city and a tower with his tops to the heavens. Let us make a great name for ourselves. They're excited. They're doing things. They're encouraged to work. 
He also says great things may be brought to pass when the und undertakers are numerous and unanimous and stir one another up. And so he comes as great Puritans do. And he applies it to us. He says, let us learn to provoke one another to love and good works as sinners stir up and encourage one another to wicked works. What Matthew Henry is saying is we should, we can look at these sinful human beings here in Genesis chapter 11, as they, they seek to build this temple, they seek to make great names and see that they're excited. They're unanimous. They're encouraging one another. And we should learn from that as the church. He uses this idea to provoke one another to love and to good works, which comes out of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Let us, how, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. All the more as we see the day approaching. I think as a church, we should be ones who are unified and encouraging one another to do good works to be obedient to the commands of Christ, to help our brothers in need, to be lights in the darkness. If the church, just think, kind of think about the power if the church can come together to do these things. It reminds me of the North or uh, the International Mission Board. The gathering of Southern Baptist churches giving to the cooperative programs allows the Southern Baptist Convention to send people out without trying to figure out funding, fully funded missionaries to preach the gospel. These are churches coming together unanimously, stirring one other, each other up and to do the works of missions. To the ends of the earth. This is something. As Christians we should be doing. We should be doing it in our local churches. And churches should be encouraging other churches. To stir one another up. Because if we can. Just think about. These are sinful human beings. We have the gospel. Which is the power of God unto salvation. I think if we can come together unified, encouraging one another, one another into love and good works and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, I mean, salvation is of the Lord. But to have an army like that would bring the gospel to every part of the world which is what we're called to do. So in verse five, to move on, to keep moving, we're probably only going to cover the Tower of Babel. There's a lot here. Um, in verse five, we kind of now see God's response. What does he think about this whole building a temple, trying to reach to the heavens? And so we see here, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they are all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. So we see here the Lord in great irony coming down. Now, it says, and the Lord came down to see the city. We should see this as strictly just the irony of it. 
Does God need to come down? No. God knows all things. He can always seize us. He always sees us. So they're using um, anthrop anthropomorphic language to demonstrate what's what God is going to do now here in history. God has to come down to see the city. They're trying to build this temple that reaches the tops of the heavens, and God has to come down. They're trying to pull God down, and here God just comes down. He comes down to see the city. And we should understand this within his transcendence. I think this um, helps us to understand his transcendence. That is, God is above his creation. He's above this earth. We understand that God dwells in the heavens above. His transcendence also tells us that he is our ruler. He's above us. And, and we know this because he created us. We're his creation. So in this ironic way, we see God's transcendence. But we also see here that he is near us. He is here. We have it throughout. And so he comes down. You see this tower. This is what the children of man have built. And he says they are one people. This helps us to understand why Moses told us in chapter one, there's one language in the same people. And so he and his and his inter-Trinitarian talks as Moses is being inspired to write, as they talk, this behold, they're one people. They have in this one language, they're using the same words. And this is only the beginning of what they can do. Look, this building a tower to the heavens and a demonstration against God was just the beginning. As we saw with the quote from Matthew Henry. You encourage one of the people and they're just going to keep on going. One commentator, when I was doing this and looking at it, was mentioning how this idea that the worst future reminds us of why God guarded the garden to begin with. We read it earlier. He doesn't want this. doesn't want man to eat of the tree of life and live forever in a sinful state. So here again, God is in his grace guarding us from continuing into worse sin. As he guarded the path to the tree of life, he is now going to confuse their language to protect them. Because they will only continue to go into deeper sin. We see this in how the left continues to push farther and in some sense dragging the right with them politically. They keep moving farther left without restraint. Not that this is a political show, but you have this idea. Bernie Sanders used to be really far left. He's not so far left anymore. And so because they're going to keep diving into deeper sins, God curses them. So the curse, he confuses their language. And here we see it in verse 7, come let us down and confuse their language so that they may not 
understand one each other. They are too in confusing their language. They can no longer build this temple. They can no longer continue in this path of sin. And God confusing his language. He shows his providence and keeping kind of the line of the people of God going. Because not only are they, we think about the evil that they continue to do. This evil is against God. And eventually, as we see, the people who follow the serpent are people who persecute the people of God. So we can even say that this furthering of sin could jeopardize God's promises of a savior. God stops it. He confuses their language to show in his, to stop kind of the spread of evil, the continual diving in, in order to bring about his promises. Now, we see this throughout. Even when Israel is taken away, there are a few that are left. They seem to be faithful. When Elijah thinks he's the last prophet left, God has saved a remnant. A rev, a remnant, remnant. We see this in the church age, through the persecution, even when Christian, Christianity is legalized. And they start going wayward. You have Christians going into the Alps to get away from the Roman Catholic Church because they're being persecuted. And you have John Hus and then Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. God continues to make sure his promises continue it's all in his providence but we should see god here acting preemptively to not jeopardize his promises that he will be faithful to what he promises there will be a son from the seed of the woman that will conquer the seed of the serpent and we see god's providence here in um, chapter 11. We can continue on. So, so they've he's cursed them, and in verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord God dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so we kind of see they're trying to build the tower. They're trying to build a city. They want to make a great name for themselves. And what happens? And they, they want to do this so they're not dispersed over the face of the earth. So what does God do? He confuses their language and disperses them over the face of the earth, and they can't finish their building. I mean, that's kind of like completely the opposite of what they're trying to do. And I think that's good reason. If sin is to be continual in it, God is stopping it. God is not going to allow them to make a great name that would be opposing to him. God is a jealous God. He doesn't share his glory with another. And so he confuses their language. They name it Babel, which means confusion. And uh, now we have all of the different languages. English and French and Chinese and Russian and 
all that have were and will be as languages change and adapt. The Lord is the cause of it. And it's a grace for us. But there's things here that we should remember also as we kind of look forward. In Genesis 12, the very next chapter, God promises Abraham a great name. And he does have a great name. His name is changed to Abraham, and that's how we normally refer him. But in the first promise, his name is Abram, and he will become the father of all who have, who all believe by faith. This is the argument Paul makes in chapter 4 of Romans. That it's not those who are naturally descended from Abraham that are children of Abraham, but those who are born by faith. Those who share the faith of Abraham are called to be sons of Abraham. Again, God refers to himself that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, Abraham's name is continued throughout the rest of the scripture of the God. And Jesus makes this point that Abraham is the God of that. Jesus makes the point. The God of Abraham indicates that Abraham is still alive. Again, his name is going. Again, we think about just our own history of people who made impact in the Christian faith. We remember them. We remember John Calvin and Martin Luther, Augustine, Athanasius. And we think about who they are in light of how God changed them and how they helped Christianity to continue to flourish and to continue the faith once delivered as Jude would say. But not only that, we see a connection in Acts 2. Now, Acts 2 is the day of Pentecost, what we, in, in the church calendar, if you celebrate your church calendar, it's the day of Pentecost. And we see here in Acts 2 that they have been gathered together and suddenly there comes from heaven it sounds like a mighty rushing wind and it's filled the entire house while they're sitting. And divided tongues has appeared to them and restored each to their own. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At the sound of the multitude came together, they were all bewildered, because each were hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galilean? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And then Luke will name off different areas of the Jewish empire that were there. Genesis 2 is the beginning of the reversal of the curse of Babel. The idea that the gospel is to go to the ends of the earth it means that the gospel must be translated into different languages. It must be told to people who do not speak Hebrew or Greek or Latin or English or French or German. That's why you have the Tyndale Mission Agency going out and trying to learn how to study languages in order to translate the Bible and the language of the people in order to preach the gospel to them. That they have the words of God so that they continue to grow. Acts 2 is the reversal of the curse 
of Babel. And like other reversals of the curse, Revelation, we see the final. Great multitude are there. From every tongue, every nation will come together. And as I was thinking through this passage and teaching it, I was sitting there as like, will heaven be like Pentecost? I speak English, talking to Augustine, and he's talking Latin to me, and we understand each other. Wouldn't that be awesome? I could read Latin. Understand him. I think when we think of Genesis 11, there is a lot there. I think it's a very important passage to think about, to consider. We have these language barriers. Even in light of current ideas of having, kind of going back to having a universal language. You hear talks of that, or, you know, you have the trade language of English and you know, everyone is learning to speak English because that's what you use to trade, which is very similar to um, Ro the Roman Empire, where a lot of people spoke Greek, and that was the trade language. And to think about why we have languages reminds us of the fallenness of, of us who we are. But even in the the how language has come apart come apart come about god still speaks to us we can translate his word and understand him and so what god used as a curse to help preserve the line is now what he uses to bless christians all over god speaks to us and he wants us to know him. He spoke through these, through the writers in the language they knew, they wrote down. We can see the differences between Luke and John and Hebrews and the author of Hebrews and Peter and Paul. And yet God wants to speak to us. He may have given this, have confused us and have divided us by language. And yet his end goal as for us as Christians is to go over those language barriers to preach the gospel to these people so that when we all get to heaven, we can rejoice in God's goodness. Even in the curse of confusing the languages so that they couldn't build a temple to the tops of heaven. We serve a great God. It's just, it's just the end of it. What, what man means for evil, God uses for good. So when Joseph tells his brothers, when they think, He's going to kill them or punish them for what they've done to him. That's the God we serve. We're a God who's transcendent, but he also wants us to know him. And so he has revealed himself to us and he has revealed himself to us in his son, as Hebrews one would say. So that has been this episode of G220 Radio, episode 507, exposition of, I guess, Genesis 1 through 9. I didn't get through the rest. Well, short, skinny with the, you have the descendants of Sham, Shem, in which we get to Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And we hear about Sarah and her barrenness and how... They went to 
went up from the Ur of Chaldeans to the land of into the land of Canaan, but they came of Haran, Haran, and they settled there. In chapter twelve, we see Moses go or Abraham go into the what will become the promised land. So that is episode five hundred seven. Gigi twenty ready. Join us next week for our coffee talks. I think is what the title of the show is, where we will randomly select a handful of topics and discuss them. I pick some of them. They should be good. Hopefully. And then um, hopefully soon we will have Deuteronomy Deuteronomy on and to discuss his ministry and to discuss with him um, about his ministry and, and the Facebook group and how um, and what he looks to achieve with that. So I want to thank you for coming to or listening to G220 Radio. And we'll see you next week to, at Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern, like always, on YouTube and Facebook and now Twitter. God bless and you have a good day.